Welcome to Treasure Talks. In this episode, I speak to Katie Jane. I've not had a female on here yet, and it only felt right to invite my girlfriend on. I'm aware, obviously, of some of her past experiences and adventures abroad, but it was nice to actually sit down and dig a little deeper and look at it from sort of an outside perspective. Very intriguing one, and she's gone out of her way to educate people on the environment, help wildlife conservation and take part in some very unusual projects, especially for me because I'm not very educated in this area, so it was a very enlightening one. Please enjoy, I'm not going to ramble on too much now because I do introduce a little bit more in the actual episode itself, so let's get into it. Welcome to the podcast. You didn't have to travel far for this one. It's in your own apartment as well, Katie Jane. Hi there. I wanted to talk to you about your journey. Obviously, I'm aware of some parts of it, but um, there's going to be a lot in there about wildlife conservation, um, how you won a scuba diving course and £6,000 worth of gear. Yeah. And we ended up in Koh Tao in Thailand. Um, And you've also been to Costa Rica. But first of all, we're back in England, we're in Birmingham, yep. living together. What a contrast, isn't it, from like what we used to in Thailand when we first moved in together? Yeah, massive difference. We're living in like the urban city now, as opposed to like a little island full of jungle and surrounded by beautiful waters. Um, yeah, big difference. Are you still enjoying the, the difference and the contrast? Um, I miss the sea. I do miss the ocean. We don't get that in Birmingham. But no, yeah, I do enjoy living in the city. I think it's a nice break to come back to kind of like the real world for a little bit. You kind of lose track of time and get lost in your own little box, um, especially where we were living because the island was so small. But yeah, it's nice to come back to the city for a bit. That's one of the little things that I enjoyed about Kota is that everything was close. Everything was like five minutes away and just convenient convenient yeah everything seemed convenient yeah. and at the end of the day if you've had a hard day because it's not all you know like people just see the pictures and mm. it is beautiful and we had an amazing time but mm. you also work hard out there and yeah but it's nice to be able to come back and then you just the views that you've got and you're next to the sea yeah. um so yeah it's a different kind of working hard i think like in the, the working hard in sense of like being in a city or in like the real world as we know it you do get caught up and you get quite stressed in the whole working hard ethic whereas on an island where we were we were still working hard but the kind of attitude to work you're there doing what you're enjoying and you're in a beautiful um beautiful settings beautiful surroundings so the stress doesn't feel you're still working hard but the stress doesn't feel as bad as it does when you're in a city and you're with people who feel the same and that makes a huge difference you're surrounded by people doing what they want to do what they're passionate about you were there as a scuba diver yeah scuba diving instructor yeah and like i say just the little things as well what i love about now we've moved into the city center i draw comparisons with the fact that i can get everywhere i want really quick yeah anywhere i want to go it's just it's there and i realized how much traffic was a affecting my mood back in back when we were here before before that yeah yeah i was driving to work um well at one point before we left for thailand i was only working at the pub wasn't i because i got back from thailand not long before that six months before that as well from my original trip to thailand um but yeah before that 
when I used to work at a zoo as an education officer, I was driving for like 45 minutes every day to work and from work, getting stuck in traffic. Um, and yeah, compare that to living on Kotal when I could just jump on my bike in the morning and literally two minutes down the road, I'm there at work. Um, yeah, it's idyllic. I remember taking the bike into the garage and being like, oh, I hope this doesn't cost me a lot of money, mm. you know, to get the service. And then I thought about it. I was like, okay, so it could cost me a thousand baht. I hope it doesn't cost me that much. And then I worked it out. I was like, that's £25. <laughs> if that happens, it happens. Like, when I had an MOT back here, it's like, okay, £400 yeah. to sort everything out. Yeah. But I want to go back now into into your journey and what you've done so far. And you've had some interesting jobs. A lot of them are surrounded surrounded by wildlife conservation yeah. and nature. What like, sort of got your interest in that? Is that something you've always been into or did you fall into this job? I've always been into um, animals, wildlife, um, spending time out in nature, but never really knew what I wanted to do. Um, when I left school, didn't really do much. I remember a teacher at school, like I wasn't, I'm not saying I'm stupid, but I wasn't, didn't really put hard work in at school. I remember one of the teachers turned around to me one day and she was like, Katie, you'll never go to university. You'll never get in. And I was like, wow, okay, you're meant to be a teacher, you're telling me that. Um, so anyway, I took time off after school, I didn't really know what I wanted to do, took a year out, worked in a pub, and then thought, well, let's have a little look as to what's available, I kind of need a plan really, what I'm doing here. And it was either going into vet nursing, or um, having a look at what courses were offered at university that were based on sort of wildlife, biology, sciences, and one caught my eye, a zoology course at the University of Derby. And I didn't actually have the grades to get in, but I went to an open day, spoke to some of the lecturers there, and they told me about a different route that I could take in to get on that course. Um, it just mean that I'd have to do a year on a foundation course and then transfer over to the second year of the degree course if I had um, the required grades from that first foundation course. So yeah, I ended up choosing that. It's funny that you say that about a tutor telling you that yeah. you're not going to make it to university. I keep hearing things like this from people where their teachers, their teachers said to them they're not going to amount to much. Mm. And it's a weird way to try and motivate people like that. But was that did that drive you to then try your hardest to get into university or I don't think it did no it just kind of it did not move down a little bit having the teacher said that and don't get me wrong I'm, I'm sure there's plenty of teachers out there that would never think of saying that to a student but it did stick with me and it's always stuck with me I think back to that now and I'm like I wish you could see where I am now and what I've done um, I might not be in the best paying job ever but I'm actually doing something good for the world as a whole and you know, I'm enjoying it. It's my passion. I love it. Is that how you feel about it? Obviously, you're not chasing money. You're going yeah. after your passion. Yeah, exactly. And once you graduated from university, mm -hmm. like, where did that lead? What was your first kind of job and, and peek into wildlife and that kind of sector? Well, I think coming out of university in general, people struggle to get jobs that they have you know that their degree can be put to use to I still know a lot of people that came out of university and went into you know they'd studied animal biology at university and they're working in retail you know it's difficult it's a hard industry to kind of crack into um, and it is what well, it was for me rather you know who I knew rather than what I knew 
one of my closest friends, Michaela, she had got in touch with um, someone that had a small animal sanctuary um, who looked after exotic wildlife, people that had had this wildlife which should not be kept as pets, but they'd been kept as pets. Um, and then eventually the person, the owner, realised that actually, you know, I can't look after this animal. I don't know exactly what it needs. It's a wild animal. Um, so this guy had this very small collection of animals that he would look after, but with this collection of animals as well we'd visit schools put on educational presentations um, to teach people about the animals but also had those animals there with the, with us to to kind of enhance the learning um, and the impact that we had um, and yeah I did that for I think it was about a year a year and a half um, which I gained a lot of experience doing. So you were the animal lady? Like oh, we, we yeah. would say the animal man, man's coming in today or the am, yeah. animal woman's coming in. Yeah, that was me. <laughs> it's an unusual job. Like You don't hear many people who, who have done that. No. And what kind of animals did you have then? Well, you... we had um, snakes were quite a common one, ranging from like just basic corn snakes, um, which can be kept as pets if the person does know how to look after them, um, to much larger snakes, which I would never recommend as keeping as a pet. Burmese pythons etc um, because they're just large and they need a lot of knowledge when it comes to um, making sure that their welfare is kept to high standards. Um, we had birds, parrots were quite a, an usual one again people take on these pets and they don't realize how demanding you know parrots in general are they can't look after them um, and then that. they start having all sorts of behavioral issues are you comparing me to a parrot <laughs> no oh, not at all okay. we had a parrot my mum had a parrot when we were growing up but we yeah. actually ended up having it um because my auntie got a parrot not knowing what she'd got herself yeah. into and then we tried to kind of rather than giving it away but oh my god it was the yeah they're difficult they're very like difficult a, a and child. i don't know if they should be caged in that way no 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 they shouldn't you know they they should have a massive amount of space to roam around with plenty of things to keep them engaged and occupied in enrichment always needs to be changing for those sort of birds they're really intelligent um and yeah they're very difficult to keep in captivity where did you go after that then you obviously enjoyed that job what did what did that lead to I noticed a seasonal education officer position come up at Twycross Zoo um, and I applied for that position so it was just a six-month contract during their summer busy period the summer holidays and yeah I got that position what position I, was it exactly education officer. Oh, educate how important is education with conservation do you feel really really important yeah you can't have one without the other you need successful education or effective educational methods to ensure that you have successful conservation methods you know they work hand in hand together you can't have one without the other um so education is massively important and i think that's kind of picked up well environmental education as it's called these days has picked up over the past 20 years or so um there's a lot more linking if people will protect what they love you know and they'll only love it if they understand it so education plays a massive part in it and I think it's the age as well learning from young I was never really too interested in animals and and nature when I was younger but I suppose there's there's more available today you see kids getting involved in different conservational movements and um, whether that's for like sharks or actually you know 
trying to make a, a stand against plastic well it's it's like you say back at school we never really had those sort of opportunities to get involved in that sort of thing when I was back at school anyway and now like you said it's more accessible for children and young teenagers to get involved in all sorts of different activities whether it's run by the school as an extracurricular activity or or included in the national curriculum itself so it has it's a requirement that has to be taught to children like you say you can get involved in beach cleans you can go to your local um, nature reserve and get involved in activities that are put on there on a weekly basis with the local kind of education officers or rangers that work there so it is much more available um, and yeah should be definitely pushed is that how you'd encourage parents to get their children to join um, you know, in on wildlife conservation. Yeah, there's loads of also like little children's clubs and weekend clubs that local nature reserves offer. You can get in touch with the local councils, find out where your local nature reserve is. Um, you know, it could just be a very small area of woodland that's looked after, and you go there on a weekend and you spend an hour or so walking around, catching bugs, looking, identifying at bugs, and looking at all the different plants and trees that grow there. Um, the birds that live there, identifying the birds. Um, what can people do from home then? Are, are there some things in that that they can do from home? Yeah, just get out in your back garden. If you've got a garden, back garden's a good place to start. Just um, identify. Garden, I'm not. Ident- what's that? <laughs> or your front garden. Well, yeah. Back garden. But if you've got a front garden as well, they're just you as can't important. Be, you can't be prejudiced I'm not from one to the other. No. Um, so yeah, just getting outside and encouraging kids to get their hands dirty and just, I don't know. Maybe identify birds, like you say, bugs, and yeah. maybe growing. That seems to be yeah. something that's more popular now, where I, I haven't got a clue how to where to even start and yeah. didn't do that when I was younger. My mum tried to get me into it, to be fair, but I was too uh, fixated on sport. Football. Yeah, yeah. pretty much. You, you was at Tricross Zoo, and eventually you ended up in Costa Rica. Uh, I'd love to go there, but yeah. how did that end up happening? Um. <laughs> It's a really funny story. Um, my manager, um, who was an absolute brilliant manager, probably one of one of the best managers that I've ever had, she came up to me one day and she sat down next to me at my desk and said, oh, Katie, where do you see yourself in five, ten years' time? I was like, oh, I don't really know. Probably still sitting at this desk doing this job. And she was like, no, you need a plan. You need a plan as to what you want to do. Where do you see yourself in five years? You need to know and you need to kind of work there to get it. And I was like, I really don't know. It's not something that I've thought about. I think I was, how old was I at this point? I was like 28, maybe. How rare is that? It's very unusual to have a manager to push you to yeah. like personally, you know, personally your personal develop. development. Yeah, massive, you know, that was 80% personal development, 20%, you know, this is kind of what we'll get for, back as a person at the end of it that will help the zoo and help the education department. Um, yeah, so she offered me three months sabbatical leave and I took it um, and she said, just go away, do something, find like a, a project that you want to go away and work on, go traveling or something. Um, so yeah, I took the three month sabbatical and I did a two month internship um, at a research base in Tortuguero National Park in Costa Rica. So it's on the Caribbean coastline of Costa Rica. Um, absolutely beautiful area of the world. Stunning and so alive with just vibrant, healthy, um, 
ecosystems you know I'd never ever seen a place like this before and, and as soon as I arrived there I was like wow this is this is pretty amazing and re- to be fair there's an even weirder story that goes beyond this I'd watched a documentary probably about four years previous to this about this area of the world Tortuguera National Park in Costa Rica um, and it, I didn't didn't I f- I remember watching the documentary and I thought, wow, I want to go there. Like That looks insane. Amazing. How old were you then? Probably like 22, maybe 23. Um, and I, t- I said to myself, I was like, I will get there one day. That's insane. I need to put this on my bucket list. Anyway, life got in the way. I forgot about that documentary. And it wasn't until I arrived at this base in Costa Rica and we were shown this documentary um, as one of kind of like one of the evenings where we'd all sit down with all the the volunteers and the researchers there um, and I watched the documentary and I was like oh my god I've seen this before this is the place um, and then yeah it all made sense I was like wow I'm actually here that's serendipity <laughs> it at, is at it really best. is yeah yeah that's a uh, that's madness yeah. uh, Costa Rica go against the grain in a few ways as well don't they I don't really know the ins and outs but don't I'm sure their government tackle these issues on conservation and the rest of it different to other countries in in parts they do very very well they have large areas of the country which are protected by law they are kind of the leaders in eco travel and eco tourism so a lot of their new build hotels and apartments um are very much at one with nature and have a minimal carbon footprint. They do really well in terms of that sort of thing. However, there are other areas of conservation that they don't set a great example to, and that relates to shark conservation. So um, they still fish and hunt massive quantities of sharks around the waters of Costa Rica, which often get exported further out. Uh, Again, I don't know too much in detail about this, but it's, it's weird to think that a country will you know kind of excel in one part of wildlife conservation yet really set a bad example on another side of things what was your role there then so i was an intern it was a paid internship so i'd, I'd actually paid for it myself to gain the experience because i knew that you know throwing myself out the out of my comfort zone of my office and working you know here in england would bring a massive amount of experience was you nervous in the build-up to it on your way to costa rica what what was the feeling there Mm, not really more excitement yeah i think i was more excited and i knew that like i was you know i was going on my own it was the first time i traveled anywhere on my own and i'd planned this two-month internship to stay there and then a month traveling afterwards and my friend michaela was going to come over afterwards towards the end to spend the last two weeks with me um, and we could travel around there and have a little holiday um, so no, I think I was just excited, probably a little bit nervous, but more very excited to see what the, the time was going to bring. Can you tell us a little bit about the projects you was actually working on there then? Yeah, I was, there was various projects. The main project that they had ongoing at the time was looking at jaguar predation on nesting sea turtles. So the beach that we were pretty much like 10 metres away from was prehistoric beach you know we were in the middle of nowhere 15 miles away from the nearest village and that village was a tiny village as well and they had a a, quite a healthy population of jaguars roaming through the national park but these jaguars would when the nesting sea turtles would come up onto the beach they would occasionally attack the sea turtles um, and feed off them so it was looking into more as to 
you know, how often do the jaguars do this and is it going to have an impact on the sea turtle populations, in particular these females that were coming up to the beach and nesting. Um, so, yeah, we do uh, beach patrols, so we do what we call a jag walk every Thursday and that would consist of walking down the coastline for 26 miles, which was long and hot. Um, this is boiling hot no in Costa Rica the sand was yeah it was pretty hostile when the sand you know you're walking in a part of the wet sand and then you're walking in the hedgerow and what we were looking for we were looking for evidence of jaguars on the beach but also any evidence that we could pick up um, of um, we'd often come across sea turtle carcasses that had been dragged off the beach into the hedgerows um, so it would be a case of you know um, recording all of this um, evidence that we were finding we'd collect the jaguar scats that we'd come across and we'd um t- kind of uh, take them apart and see what the jaguars was feeding on and then we'd send that uh, sample off to um, a lab who would then analyze it and test it further so we were getting kind of like a lot of information from these jag walks as well we'd have five of us or five or six of us on the jag walk and we'd all be positioned up along the beach from the water's edge to the hedgerow and we'd just walk along in a line all together and it would normally take us about seven or eight hours to do that 25 mile 25 mile walk you probably wasn't involved in the build-up and the pre-planning stage of that project Mm, i'm guessing no but when when that sort of stage happens i'm not sure if how aware you are of what happens but what are the decisions and what's the kind of protocol in looking into okay these jaguars by doing this are impacting you know the wildlife and how the ecosystem works Mm. when do people propose okay we're going to get involved and then humans are going to get involved and change how that works do you know what i mean like kind of i don't think there was ever a time when they looked at it and thought jaguars are having an effect on them it was all always finding out are are the jaguars having an effect on them okay um on the populations but there has been research recently published that has said that they don't have a massive effect on the population it's not a significant effect on the population of these sea turtles um they would kill and eat maybe one sea turtle every i don't know i can't remember what it is but it's not a lot you know, they'd very rarely kill and eat a sea turtle. Um, so, yeah, it's it's it was more seeing as to are they having an effect? And I think even if they were having an effect, people would not get involved with that because that is, um, you know, that's kind of nature and it's nature's keeping its balance. So the um, project's itself. more for like research purposes yes. and saying, okay, yeah. not that anyone's going to intervene and get involved, but let's have yeah, a look let's and find out more about this because it's a unique interaction. There's very few other places in the world where you'll see big cats predate sea turtles. You know, you've got a massive land mammal going for a um, animal that only comes up once every however many years to the beach to nest. That interaction itself is a pretty cool thing to be able to go and study and find out more about. Okay, that makes sense. It's because I think my thinking there was it's interesting when humans get involved in things and some of it's like damage limitation. We were ruining the earth as it is and then it's a a balancing act of let's get involved and and try and, you know, do what we can to conserve. 
And is that always the best thing to do? Because then it has another knock-on effect sometimes. What's your thoughts, um, changing the subject slightly, but Mm. it's it's kind of related to that, Mm. in um, keeping animals in zoos. Obviously, Mm. you've worked in a zoo and you had the animals. I mean, the the first one's a little bit different because you actually kind of rescued animals that shouldn't have been pets. And then you're using that for the good to educate. What about zoos? What's your thoughts on that? So zoos um, and keeping animals in captivity in general is also always going to be a controversial subject to talk about. In an ideal world, we would not need zoos. We would not need sanctuaries um, because our animals, our wildlife would be you know safe enough out in the real world ourselves uh, themselves but I think in a day and age where like you said humans are having such a negative impact on the earth in a way we're kind of like parasitic to the earth if you want to kind of put it in that sort of terms um then we do need these sort of things um projects and programs good zoos do a, a lot of good work you've got bad zoos still and those are the ones that need to be wiped out. We we can't live in a day and age where bad zoos are functioning and basically making money um, that's not doing any good for um, you know the the world on a whole. There there are numerous zoos around the world that do a lot of um, what's called uh, in situ projects. So they're working out in the wild supporting really important conservation efforts that otherwise would not be supported because they wouldn't have the money to do that Um, and then you've got the talk about the breeding programs as well which um, zoos and aquariums as well they have breeding programs or will always be a part of a breeding program to maintain a genetically healthy captive population it's not always the case in zoos and aquariums that that can be achieved um unfortunately that's just the how it is um depending on the species of the animal that we're talking about but these yeah these breeding programs are important because it keeps that backup population whereas in the in the future if there is a need for individuals to be um, or a, an effort to be considered where we need to boost the wild populations of a certain species you have these backup individuals that can be part of developing a program or a project to introduce, in, reintroduce into the wild to boost those wild populations um, again ideally it would never come to that point um, but it has been cases with some species before um, where they have had to involve um, captive bred individuals in you know releasing either them or their young into the wild um, to boost the wild populations so that's in terms of kind of like conservation and breeding programs but on a whole other note in terms of education zoos and sanctuaries have a really important role to play in educating people about wildlife and allowing people to get close up to the animals so that that can kind of reignite their passion for wildlife um a lot of people nowadays are so disconnected from nature they don't spend time out in nature they spend time fixated on their phones or in work um or you know dramas that i don't know all sorts of things we tend to forget you know we are closely connected with nature and a lot of people have lost that connection and i think being able to see the animals close up and learn more about how you can help 
and you, your behavior can change for the better to help these animals is is a really important part of conservation and it goes back to what we were saying earlier conservation and education they work hand in hand you can't expect people to protect what they don't understand and what they don't love it sounds as though your opinion on it isn't as straightforward and, and not, maybe a lot yeah, of people's yeah. isn't straightforward because it's a complex situation where um you know there's some pros and there's some cons exactly, and yep. it's always it doesn't matter what happens it will always be a controversial subject where yeah. people say that you know they shouldn't be in captivity mm. and but that there are things you can draw from it that are positives and the knock-on effect and ripple effect that that has yeah. moving forward as you say with education yeah is absolutely integral yeah it's a difficult one it really really is and like i said in an ideal world we wouldn't need zoos we wouldn't need sanctuaries because everything would be perfect outside but it, it's not that case anymore unfortunately you've done a lot of other projects like apart from the one in costa rica and kind of within wildlife you've yeah. also done a lot of um when we were in kotao in thailand you put together was it a clean a big cleanup and you've also been part of project aware back in england yeah. can you tell us a little bit just uh some sort of snippets of things that you've done like that for the for the environment yeah so i guess the the one you were talking about in kotao um earth day is a um, kind of like a global effort worldwide one day each year where everyone gets together or as many people as possible gets together um, and does something such as a cleanup a beach cleanup or puts on educational events um, to get people involved and get people acting on conservation um, and Kotao have their own uh, it's a small island 22 kilometers by no, 22 kilometres squared, I think it is. Maybe even not that big. I can't remember. But anyway, it's a tiny island. And um, each year they celebrate Earth Day by organising a big event called Kotao Earth Day. And I was asked to be the lead coordinator for it when we were in Kotao, um, which saw me try to liaise with 20-odd dive schools, um, getting hotels and other small businesses involved um on a land cleanup in the morning and then an underwater cleanup in the afternoon and we had over 70 people um and it was almost 100 people involved in the land cleanup across the island and then over 70 divers involved in the underwater cleanup around um, the island in the afternoon how much did you actually manage to pick up at, at the end of that we picked up is it something like 130 kilograms of, of trash oh, or more? It was more than a lot that. more, wasn't yeah, it? Yeah, it was way more. <laughs> I wish I'd have found that out because it was a lot. Okay, well, I'll put it in the show notes yeah, anyway. We'll find yeah. out. Wasn't it like near a ton or half a ton? I'm going like from 120 kilos to completely getting. Oh, you've put me on the spot now because I, I should really remember this and I can't. But it was a huge amount of trash, both on the land and the underwater cleanup um, that we managed to get up um and yeah it was it was a really good day and you've also done things back in England because it's not it's not all about um I think people are more aware when they're on a small island like that but we have to do our part here as mm. well um how important is it to have projects like project aware and and, and things like that that you've got involved in in England so for those that don't know project aware is a um uh, side of Paddy 
um, like the charity side of Paddy that kind of focuses on conservation of the ocean. Paddy is the professional association of diving instructors, of um, which I've been trained through up to um, the instructor level. Um, and yeah, they're project aware. They do all sorts of things, but they focus quite heavily on underwater cleanups and. For example, us living here in Birmingham, you don't really think about cleaning up underwater because we feel as though we're so distant from the oceans. Um, and, you know, although everything that we do here is still going to directly affect the ocean itself. Um, but looking more on canals and riverways that we've got plenty of around Birmingham um, and other major cities in England, um, there's not really currently it has started improving but there's not really a lot of focus on ensuring that these waterways um, are clean and that they remain clean like we'd prevent our trash our rubbish going into these oceans um there like i said in the past couple of years it has picked up a little bit you see it every now and again in the newspaper of like a little underwater cleanup in a canal somewhere um but i think it should be as much focused on as um, underwater cleanups in the ocean as well because every river will lead out to the ocean so whatever ends up in the river is going to lead up um, and end up in the ocean and did you partner with those guys there to to try and do something was it in nottingham so in nottingham at the dive school um, we tried to initiate a project with the local council um, and it had to be put on hold because i left for thailand Um, but yeah the council were really interested in setting up a um not it might even be like just a monthly cleanup in some of the different areas around um, Nottingham um, and getting people involved as well so not just having the divers in the water but working with the council and their sort of green space rangers um, to get local people involved you know the local neighborhoods involved in just cleaning up the banks whilst we were in the water and um, yeah kind of just bringing people together to clean up these spaces. So there's something you can do regardless of your location. It seems like when you're out in Thailand, it seems more apparent, but obviously there's a lot we can do here in England. And to be fair, in in most parts, I think like when you look back to Koh Tao, how environmentally um, mindful people were there compared to here, we've got a lot to catch up on here. You know, you still see people, whereas in Koh Tao, people weren't using plastic bags. You know, the shops would not give out plastic bags. Whereas here plastic bags you still see them that's where we go full full circle and think the people there there's a lot of divers and a lot of people interested in nature anyway that's why they've traveled out to yeah. somewhere like Koto. they're more likely to be in tune or at least yeah. more in tune than than, than others i'd say yeah. and that's where education again that's yeah. what i'm saying we come back to that subject of education is so important and that's yeah. uh, demonstrated there i think touching again on thailand because mm. We obviously just talked a little bit about Koh Tao and that, that was your last trip abroad and uh, your last job was as a dive instructor. Yeah. How did you start off in Thailand then? What project was you working on? What was your role? What led you to go out to Thailand? So I, when I got back from Costa Rica, I went back to working at Twai Su and um, I was there for nine months, but during those nine months I was looking at other things that I could be doing because now I'd got kind of like itchy feet again after coming back from Costa Rica. I just wanted to go away and work abroad. Um, So I kept my eye open on the careers abroad page that GVI um, post their 
uh, job listings on. So GVI were the company, Global Vision International were the company that I went out with originally to Costa Rica, obviously had such an amazing experience and thought, you know, how about looking, keeping an eye on their website and seeing if there's any sort of position that I could get there with them. Um, And this one role came up in the Seychelles, which I applied for and I had an interview for, but unfortunately didn't get it. Um, But I was contacted by GVI two days later after that interview saying, we've got a position that's opened up in Thailand. We think you'd be suitable for it. Can you interview for it? Who Just for listeners, who are GVI? I know some people will know already. Yeah, so Global Vision International are a social enterprise um, who offer um, um, volunteers a programme which they can enrol on, which allows them to get involved in different sort of um, from education teaching programs to health programs to conservation programs in various parts of the world um, their bases are set up and ready to go when people arrive they're basic they're kind of like taken in as part of the family and you get trained up on each sort of project that you're working on whilst and you're there. you applied for an actual role rather than yeah, a so volunteer I, role. yeah yeah so originally I was an intern with the Costa Rica base um, but then I applied for a paid position as a coastal conservation coordinator for the Pangna hub um, which is based in southern southern thailand and um yeah, so i had that interview and i think it was like a day later they emailed back saying yeah we'd love to have you here can you come out in four weeks so um yeah i handed my notice in at work and um got my stuff ready sorted my visa out went over there and um, was you nervous that time i was actually because I knew it was going to be for much longer. How um, long was it initially it was planned for? A year contract. So you, I knew I was going to be out there for a year. How long did you spend there in the end? 18 months in total. So I did extend it another six months. Um, but yeah, it was probably the best 18 months I've ever had, spending time with the people that I met out there. I met so many people. Um, the volunteers coming in, some volunteers would only stay for two weeks, others would stay for six months, you know, it was like a massive family and the staff members that I worked with were all amazing and that was like a massive family to me as well. Um, did you meet a lot of people, like, a lot of the people you were meeting, yeah. did you find that you all had this shared passion? Was it, because I always wonder with the volunteers, are you getting people there who are, who are there to, yeah. you know, sort of say they're doing something but enjoy really living out in thailand or what i'm guessing is by the sounds of it you all go there and you've got this passion for wildlife yeah the majority of people that came to our base um, were really passionate we had three different programs running from our base actually we have four different programs running from the base we had the conservation coastal conservation program we had a health program and we had a teaching program and then separate to those we had a service learning program which um, universities would bring groups of their students Um, we had kind of good prestigious universities from America come over and join us Duke University um, would come over there and they're still going over there now as well Um, so we'd get them involved in certain projects that they could do and complete whether it's um, repainting the local school or organizing big kind of sport day events for the kids um so yeah they'd get involved in that which was kind of a little bit separate to what we were doing but like I said the majority of the people that came they were passionate and they wanted to spend time there and actually wanted to make a difference to the projects and leave their impact there were a few people that we did have 
outcome that probably didn't give a damn about what they were doing there and i think they were most likely paid to come by their parents you know there for the gram there for the gram if you want to put it that way yeah definitely definitely pictures like look at me in thailand but like you say for the majority yeah i think if you're going out and doing a project like that it's not going to be that luxurious what was the village like in itself really basic oh we were living in um very small village called banam kem in south of thailand it's about two and a half hours north of phuket um on the andaman coastline our nearest tourist town um was about half hour drive away that was kaolak and uh, Banam Kem was actually one of the worst hit places in Thailand in the tsunami that took place in 2004. It was originally labelled as a slum, this village was. It had a mixture of Thai people and Burmese people living there. A lot of the Burmese people, they didn't have the right to live in Thailand. Um, and there was probably, before the tsunami hit, over 5,000 people living in the village in a very small area poverty really really low um and yeah when the tsunami hit it wiped out around about half of the population of the village and it was one of the last places to receive um kind of attention um in recovering the bodies and helping rebuild the village because it just wasn't high on the list of places to okay assist so to. there's a lot of poverty in mm, that area yeah and how did the people on the GVI project integrate into the community there? It wasn't easy. It came with its challenges. As Obviously, like I wasn't there when the GVI base originally got set up. I um, can't remember the exact date that GVI started working there. I know they started with a teaching program initially um, and then kind of built up the other programs around that. But even when I was there, there was still challenges to integrate into the village majority of the village um, accepted us as um, their teachers so they'd look to us as you know English teachers you would walk down the street and even if I didn't really do you know teaching every day they still knew me as going into the schools they'd go oh teacher teacher hello Um, and yeah they they'd looked up to us as kind of role models which was really nice um but yeah for a lot of volunteers coming in that have you know left their comforts of the western civilization and coming to this village and seeing you know the levels of poverty that we had there and the sometimes challenging integration into the communities it could be quite difficult for them yeah i'm sure it was eye-opening i think with Mm. a place like that as well i can imagine the challenges as much as some people see you as role models as in terms of you you're there for a, a good reason yeah um i suppose you can tread on people's feet a little bit as well because at the end of the day it's not your country and you're exactly. going there to make a difference and but. that was one of the challenges that we would face there you know we'd kind of come up with these ideas of how we could help our partners and we'd always have our partners um interests in um in our hands you know we'd kind of look at their interests first and be like okay we can help them by doing this this is what they want to achieve this is how we can help them but often when you go to people especially the ties they're such a proud nation that don't and it's not that we're telling them to do think that they're doing things wrong we're telling them that it can be done a different way um if you go about it in a non-sensitive manner you're going to offend people 
Um, it's I, not a case of us going in and saying, hey, you're doing this now, but we think you should be doing it like this. And you, you can understand, imagine somebody coming into our yeah. apartment and saying, well, you could actually do this or do that. It's not, you know, yeah. you might, it's a, could be an offensive way to do it. So I guess you had to be skilled, like you say, to, to be sensitive about it. And then everybody works towards the same goal. Something yeah. I wanted to ask um, in regards to that is, did you involve people in the area in the projects that you were doing? Because I recently, in fact, it's a book that you lent me, uh, Lost Language of the Plants, I think yeah. it's called. I'll put this in the show notes as well. Anything we talk about that I think is of uh, value, I will put in the links. But this book talks about how a young generation have been given like a better education than their ancestors in South America and their grandparents. And they were kind of like thinking, you know, we're cleverer than our grandparents, which naturally you would if you could, because you're being given all these different lessons and they tried yeah. to teach them about nature. And then when they quizzed them about things they had learned about um, in terms of like plant species and yeah. animal species, I think they were averaging four out of 15 throughout the class. Right. Uh, then they gave it to their the parents of them and they got, I think it was 14 out of 15. There's a big difference in education between these two generations where mm. um, one was given lots and they expected the, the kids to excel and they didn't. And they said that basically the grandparents, if they had been given the test, which they wasn't, not only would they get 15 out of 15 of these species, they'd also tell you the different um, growth in processes and they'd be able to name and list that to you yeah yeah so it's an important thing isn't it it's one thing doing the science on a like throughout through a book yeah but then it's another thing going and experiencing it so did you yeah. did you do that as well like with the community yeah definitely the communities will always know their area especially when it comes to um, environmental conservation working with the local communities is a must because they often know it a lot better than any researcher or any scientist can go in um, and think they know it you know you've got the community that have lived there for generations and have got knowledge that have been passed down from their ancestors that you know scientists and researchers may not pick up on or it just takes them a little bit longer to identify um so yeah a lot of the projects that we'd um, get involved in were always involving the local communities in particular the one on the islands which um i helped kind of initiate this project and set up this project um i remember when this project was just like a spark in my imagination we visited these couple of islands on a weekend off and we went and met with a marine biologist that were work that was working on the islands and he'd lived there for quite a long time i think it was like 18 20 years um and these islands were not touristy in any way very very rarely would tourists visit these islands um the they were called copratong and Kora. Um, and they were probably about three hours travel north of where our base was and then just off into the ocean into the Andaman Sea and yeah like I said they were very unique islands but obviously the communities were also unique themselves as well they were old um, Moken communities the majority of them are and they're sea gypsies that were found in this area and still can be found to this day although many of them don't live out at sea anymore um but back in the day they would have lived at sea and that everything all their lives would have revolved around the ocean 
Um, most of them have set up lives on Kopatong or Koran now. Koran, not so much. I think there was like one or two families living on the island. And it's a huge island covered in dense rainforest. And yeah, little is known about it. And, you know, finding out the way that they knew their island. We had a local tour guide or a local guide um, that could speak relatively good English compared to everyone else there who would show us around and tell us all about the plants and the animals living on there and it might sound like a bizarre question but yeah. how did these people adjust to living back on land because I watched something on David Attenborough human yeah. planet and they were showing people who lived out at sea and I think yeah. you know it must be hard moving on a boat all the time to then being on land I'm sure yeah. they actually felt sick from being on land probably probably it would not surprise me and I don't think it was well I know that it wasn't their um choice to move back and set up on land it was um forced by um I'm not too sure whether it was the government or some law came in which stopped people living out at sea and they had to live on land can you just quickly tell us um some of the things that the projects you were involved in what that um, consisted of um so the project that i've just been talking about on the islands that was a camera trapping project um both of the islands hadn't really been um researched a lot on and uh, we still didn't really know what sort of wildlife was living in the um in the forests mainly on Kora because the forest was pretty dense um, and like I said, not I think there was a camera trapping in the north of the island at one point, which didn't exist anymore, by another volunteer organisation that was working on the islands. Um, what is camera trapping? So camera trapping is setting up a camera, um, leaving it there, and then obviously when it senses something moving in front of it, it will take a photo. So it's a great way of accessing and gaining valuable information in areas that are hostile and quite hard to get to because it doesn't require you to be there all the time. So you can set up a camera, you can leave it, you can come back two weeks later. Um, So it's quite, when it comes to kind of intensity and work effort, it's minimal. You go there, you set up the camera, you leave it, you just revisit it to get the footage and and the SD card and swap it over with the batteries um so yeah we set up that camera trapping project there mainly due to the fact that we'd heard that there were there's a certain type of critically endangered species living on that island that i was like we need to get this on camera because if it's not documented before this is pretty important for the survival of the species as a whole um so yeah we set up this camera trapping project and yeah of course we caught this species on the camera um and we also found out numerous other species living on the island that we didn't expect to be on there as well. I'm guessing you have to be careful with some of the information. It's quite sensitive to what you can disclose um, to keep the the interest of conservation. Exactly. That makes sense without going into it too much. But obviously you can't reveal all the species and what you found and different research. Is that true? That's true. And we we did kind of as well, there was a little bit of not so much conflict, but there was also that worry about the locals and if we're obviously they know what sort of animals are living in there but if we're gaining more and more information about the species that are living on the island especially if they're you know of of more importance conservation wise well what and yeah and what you're kind of saying as well is um it's one thing getting the help of 
people but then if um, there's monetary value to yes. species for instance obviously it wasn't sharks but mm. if you find certain sharks and when people find out of, about them in the area mm. we've seen a problem with shark fins and sharks being hunted to sell shark fins for soup in china and mm. um they, they it's always a weird thing when you suddenly put a price on a living species it's just it's bizarre but well, the, that's it's not a price on a living species in that way is it? it's a it's the price on the dead individual although it is now shown that in many areas of conservation these animals are wa- worth so much more alive than they are dead um, and that's kind of you know in what fun. way is that to attract tourism to yes. the country yes yeah, so i was going to mention ecotourism then and that's the way a lot of these conservation projects are moving forward is kind of trying to highlight to tourists and communities the local communities that have in the past seen this species as, as different um value that now look if we keep it alive look how much value has increased for this species um so yeah, that, that's a good change that's happening um, in many parts of the world at the moment. But there are still areas, like we did find our camera traps um, turned off in part in on some occasions. And we did think that was to do with people on the island at the time as well that didn't want the camera trap set up. Um, it never raised itself to a conflict because we weren't we weren't kind of like intruding on it that much we, we only had six cameras or five cameras across the whole island um but yeah there was definitely some people that maybe did not want us to be there as much as we wanted to be there well, i'm sorry to like um speed the, the podcast oh, up. we're like 52 sorry. minutes in yeah. but uh, i feel like we could talk all day and it just yeah. shows how like interesting the things you've done are as well um but i wanted to make sure that we touch on because this was how long ago was this when you were working in Thailand on these projects? It was 2016 and 2017. And since then, you came back, um, you got a little job back at home, and yeah. then we met, and we we had it in our mind for a while. Like, I already, when we met, one something we had in common was, I wanted to, I'd been to work Thailand, abroad. you had been to yeah. Thailand, we both wanted to work abroad, I work remote, you were then chasing a passion in diving and yeah. something you wanted to do as a dive instructor. Can you tell people the moment you realise that there's a competition to become a scuba diving instructor, which is worth probably £6,000 worth mm. in qualifications, but not only that, there's also like £6,000 worth of all the scuba gear that you need yeah. to start? Yeah, so um, Master Divers were the dive store that I did my... Uh, open water with back in 2018 maybe I can't remember what year is it now 2019 you don't All even right, know no, what it year you're in <laughs> it would have been 2017 um just before I left Thailand and I came back home and met you I did my open water and um absolutely loved it was not a very good diver after my open water I was alright I was okay but I knew that I could actually like get better and so yeah I kept diving came back home kept diving did my rescue course here and um started looking at doing my dive master course with the the shop in Nottingham and uh then I noticed this uh competition go up on the Facebook page of master divers saying um you could win whole uh 
training from wherever you are now right up until instructor level and um, all of the equipment that you need all cost covered all you need to do is pay for pl- flights and your living costs out there and I was like okay that sounds good I remember telling you about it and saying will you help me with the edit of the video because the first part of the competition was to record uh, record a video um, a little blog about myself and why I felt like I should win the competition um, so yeah I did that blog and uh, the next round was to get as many votes yeah, so you needed to get votes yeah, on the, yeah. the vlog. It was like a video blog. And yeah, then sorry. then it was actually a blog eventually, wasn't it? And I think there's something yeah. in between. I can't remember what it no, was. No, that was it. There was the, the vlog, which you got voted for. And it was the five of the top vote. Yeah. And five of the ones chosen by Master Divers. So there was 10 in the final round. And 10 of us wrote a blog based on a conservation topic of our own choice. And, and funnily enough didn't you do yeah. it about what we've just been speaking yeah, about so i did it about um i titled it no man is an island and i wrote about the conservation project that i was involved in and what that one that i was involved in in thailand um can you tell people what that title means as well no man is an island it's more about like the connection between um people and nature um, and just keep ensuring that connection stays there. Similar to what we've just talked about, really, yeah, isn't it? As well yeah. of involving communities and all working together. Yeah, How Have, did... looking at it from a holistic approach rather than, you know, an individual. Yeah. How did it feel when you found out that you had won that competition? It felt really weird. It felt surreal. It really did. Well, it's so crazy when things happen in yeah. sync. Like you had been, you had already. We'd spoken about it, hadn't we? We'd spoken about, eventually, we wanted to move to Koh because we were showing each other, like, like, when I got bored at work at the pub, I was sending you pictures of these amazing apartments on the island and thinking, you know, oh, imagine if we lived there, you know. This this was even before the competition was up, before it, it even entered. So we'd kind of, like, started visualising ourselves being there, whether it was going to be later on that year or next year. Didn't really put a time to it, but knew that that was where we wanted to be. It felt crazy with the... It was, like, I don't want to sound all hippified, but mm. the manifestation yeah. of you coming back. We we met, we had very similar interests, and then you said about you wanting, you've worked in Thailand, you want to go back to Thailand. Yeah. I was like, I've been to Thailand for a few months, and mm. I wanted to go there. And then... You said next time you go, you want to be a diver. You've, yeah. you've done the wildlife conservation. Now you want to implement that into Yeah, into I want to just expand my um, ability to educate in a different method, in a different channel. You know, new scuba diving as a channel to educate people about the importance of conservation. I think the hard part then would have been to, to gather the money, like yeah. we said, for the scuba diving gear and the courses. It would so, have taken me years. Exactly. So then yeah. to win it, yeah. it's just mad but i also think as well as it's not just wishing for something you were back here putting your all into working in nottingham you were driving all the way there Mm. um you know not to get paid but to to help with these projects and to get your diving course as well uh ones that you could do without having to travel yeah um we were showing each other these places in koh tao (laughs) And then you worked hard on this blog and the video blog, and it all just came together. That it's just so mad how that happened. But I just wanted to include that into this because 
um it's a huge part of the story we're back yeah. here now but you're still doing what you love um with diving still get to dive every day yeah. and we've got plans in the future but i think we should talk about that another time there's so many yeah. things i wanted to talk to you about with fragmentation of these jungles and the wildlife and the impact that has yeah um i wanted to talk about mangroves because when we were riding around in copanyan you were educating me as we drove around and that's it yeah. feels like a long time ago yeah now. Uh, there's that. so much to talk about and we're an hour in but um i want to say thanks for coming on uh you had to walk all the way from that sofa over there i know it was so comfy on that sofa <laughs> as well i can't believe you made me move and yeah uh, you've done a lot a lot of things that you're passionate about and it's an inspiring story obviously you've i've witnessed the hard work you've put into clean up the lands in kotao mm. um, to get people on board to educate people um so yeah it's good to have you on Thank One you. thing before you go, go on. you've just been, I've had to pull you away from this book that uh, you've been reading and the free, so I thought we can put a link on this yeah, podcast definitely. for um, people. These books, they're a little bit old now, but for anyone that's interested in learning more about the state of the oceans, um, and they're really good educational tools, so whether you, I don't know, you could use it for anything, even just like your own reading, it re- it's really helpful. Um, but they were published in 2010. It's the World Ocean Review, Living with the Oceans, and it's a five-part publication. Um, and yeah, just like I've only got to the first couple of pages, but just looking in from? here now, um, uh, you get it off the internet. I'll give you the link so you can put it in the notes. Okay, so if you bottom. go to treasuretalks.net, as I keep saying all the way through, just go on the show links and uh, it'll be in there. But again, thanks for coming on. There's so much to still learn from you and. Um, yeah, well, I will ask you a quick couple of questions actually before you go, if that's all right. Okay. Um, I like to ask people what they do in their daily routine that makes them able to be as successful as they are. So, is there anything putting you on the spot a little wow, bit here? You didn't tell me about these, but questions. there's things. I guess with you, with wildlife conservation, yeah. there's things that you do every day that impact this earth. So, is there anything? Let's let's put it around that. Uh-huh. Put the emphasis on that. Is there anything you do in your lifestyle? So, I it's it's a difficult one because, like I say, you, like you said, I've got loads of um, opportunities in the job that I'm doing at the moment. Obviously, we'll save this for the next podcast, probably. But the job that I'm doing at the moment, education comes into it massively. So I feel as though keeping that inspiration and that positive attitude towards um, wildlife conservation and environmental conservation is a must um, because if you're not positive about it what's the point you know you have to stay positive you have to make people feel like they can be part of the change for a better world um one of the other things obviously that i have been doing for five years now i've cut out meat cut out dairy don't eat fish um i've been vegan for five years and although i don't i'm not like a very vocal vegan about it i will always always try and educate people even if it's in the slightest ways um to cut out their meat or to reduce their meat consumption because that's a massive massive um factor of you know that the deterioration of uh environments across the world yeah animal agriculture and factory farming and a lot of people like factory to throw fishing in as well factory fishing which uh, a lot of the time they end up catching sharks and other things you know they don't have they can't always um, just catch what they're looking for they no. end up you know um, also damaging other species but 
I know a lot of people like to throw out their what about soy, but I think it's seven, between seventy to eighty percent of um, soy agriculture and it's fed to, it's fed to the animal the animals that yeah. you're growing to eat. So yeah. um, just that alone could feed this the whole world. Forget about the animals and the earth, the starving people. Um, so it's it's something to I'm not, let's not go into it too much, but yeah, it's something yeah. to look into. Another question I quickly want to ask is. Where do you see yourself in five years? Oh, you sound like my old manager. Yeah, well, um, that's so- <laughs> probably sitting at this desk and doing podcast number twenty-four with you. No, I don't know. Um, yeah, I really don't know. I'm ne- I've never been one to make plans. Um, I will have ideas, but I won't as such make plans. I just kind of take things as they go. I would like to continue traveling and seeing different places around the world. And I think you know, the position that we're both in, this is going to be something that we can do. Um, Where do you want to visit? I'd love to go back to Costa Rica, but I'd also love to do other parts of Central and South America as well. Um, I feel as though for now I've spent as much as I love Thailand and I love Southeast Asia. I've spent enough there. I kind of want a little bit of change of scenery elsewhere. Um, So yeah, definitely Central and South America are on my to-do list within the next couple of years. Brilliant. Well, let's round it up there then. And like I say, we'll do another one um, talking, I think, about our favourite things of travelling, Thailand and other places you've been. That'll be a nice one. Yeah. So thanks for joining. Thank you for having me. Where can people find you? You can go on to katiejanedives.com or you can find me on Facebook, katiejanedives, and also follow me on Instagram at katiejane. Thanks for listening, everyone. If you can leave us some feedback, appreciate it as always. Peace.